Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your presence and your power. We are so thankful for an opportunity we have to exalt you, to uh, sing high the name of Jesus Christ, the name that is certainly and always above all other names. And we have entered in today, God, I believe the purpose is for us to be um, to meet with you, to, to, to sense the working of your spirit in this place. And God, we come with, with hearts adoring you and voices singing out to you. And we come ready to hear from your word, a word, God, that we believe can guide and correct and encourage. But Father, we know that an authentic, life-changing encounter with your word is supernatural. And so we're asking that you would speak to us through your word, that it would come to bear on our lives and as we receive it, that we would be knowledgeable of the lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives, that our faith, God, and our uh, pursuing after you in the context of this church is to make much of Jesus, not any person's name. Nothing is sweeter than the name of Jesus and so would you just speak to us and lead us forward it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 You can grab a seat. And, uh, man, so thankful for this opportunity um, just to worship with you. Uh, some of you uh, may have noticed this morning that we had a, um, a, a video guy walking around our services. And uh, his name is Chad. He is from Prison Fellowship. And uh, when we uh, recorded the testimony video, of uh, Dylan's life, um, it got picked up by some people in prison fellowship, and uh, and and this guy Chad um, actually came uh, this today and tomorrow just to kind of follow Dylan around. They want to do a feature of just what God's done in his life and how uh, God has restored him. Amen. It is um it is a true joy just to see uh, that impact playing out, and uh, excited to see how God's going to use that in the future. Um, really, if you think about it, um, anybody who understands the impact of the church throughout history uh, knows that the church has always impacted the culture. It's always eventually had an impact in the culture. Even in the United States, in our history, the church was integral in establishing the education system in colonial America. Many churches um, have stood on the right side of the cultural battle for racial equality um, churches and individual Christians uh, throughout church history have established organizations and movements to help the disadvantaged. You see it all the time, and uh, I could give you so many other examples throughout church history. And that should continue to happen because the Bible uh, calls the church to be a light to the nations and to, to, to reach out with the love of Christ. And, and when, we, when we reach out with the love of Christ and we see um, uh, somebody disadvantaged or an opportunity to show, some, show compassion, and the church should be the first one there to respond to that. And uh, I believe that um, this is an opportunity that each and every Christian should consider. How can my faith impact culture? Not, not, not just, maybe don't think so large and grandiose as some of the ways that God has used people in the past, but just think in the midst of your culture, the people around your life, um, how is your faith impacting that culture? How can God use my life? How can God use our lives collectively as the church of Jesus Christ to impact our culture? It will not be without opposition. 
We've seen that, right, in the pattern of, of what we see playing out in the book of Acts. But um, we cannot back away from hard things because Jesus warned us. He warned us that persecution and opposition would come. But we can't back away because Jesus also said and promised that he would be with us through it, right? And so the people of God are compelled by this. Today, we're going to see how the church in Ephesus was impacting the culture in Ephesus, and we're going to be challenged to respond in similar ways to carry principles from this passage into our lives. And so let me first just review uh, what Pastor Jeremy covered last week to sort of uh, set up our focus. Um, He talked about last week um, what a robust faith was. And he showed us as it documents in verses uh, 1 through 21 of of chapter um, 19 how the believers were, they had this faith that was full and it was transforming their lives. It was both experiential and reasonable and spiritual. The Spirit was filling and controlling their lives. The, their minds were captivated by God's kingdom. Brokenness was being healed. Uh, evil practices were being confessed and divulged. And through the work of the gospel, that same thing is still happening in our lives today as the followers of Jesus Christ, the same patterns. So what we're going to see in this next section is how that work of Christ, how that robust faith was impacting the culture. And so write down this big idea to sort of guide us as we walk through this. Robust faith will infiltrate and impact a surrounding culture. It is a necessary reality of faith that is wanting to get out and infiltrate. And so what I'm going to do in this message is I just want us, to, I want us to understand what God's Word is teaching us in this passage. I want us to see some of the parts of that. And then I'm going to draw out sort of two challenges for us if we want to be a church that infiltrates and impacts culture. So if you're ready, say go. Go. Okay, here we go. Verse 21 and 22. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. Some familiar places we've seen already in the book of Acts. Saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So here you see Paul like going, okay, there's some places I want to get to. I want to get to, um, I got to go back through these churches that I've planted. I want to encourage them. Paul just has this unbelievable depth to his affection for the churches. He's like, I love these people. And even though I can't be with, the, be with them kind of for a long period of time because of the mission I'm on, I still want to go encourage them. And then he wants to get to Jerusalem. And oftentimes that's an opportunity to shape the direction of the church as it was growing. And then his long term was always Rome. It was Rome. He wanted to get to Rome. He always pressing the gospel forward. But right here, some people are being sent. He's talking about where he wants to go. But he says he stays in Asia for a while. Look at verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. It's kind of an interesting little play on words. It's like, hey, we're about to tell you about a disturbance. It was not little, not a small disturbance. And we're going to get all the details about that in just a a few moments. But um, I love the reference um, to Christians as the way. Like that's how they collectively referred to them. And the reason why is because the church wasn't just talking about Jesus. They were walking in the way of Jesus. 
it was a different way. They knew that that way conflicted with the direction that everybody else seemed to be going over here, and yet there was a way that the followers of Christ were going, and it, this reference, it captures the essential nature of discipleship. If you just want to underline that in your Bible and just write next to it, that's discipleship. That's discipleship. It is following the way of Jesus. Following the way of Jesus. Verse 24, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, those craftsmen, with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. So we now, we get this big glimpse of where, of where Paul's being led and then we get this, we're, we're now right, we're immersed in, we're immersed in an, um, an Ephesus business meeting. That's what's happening here. You got Demetrius, he's clearly the leader of these guys, maybe he had the longest tenure, and, and they're looking at the chart on the, on the screen and they're like, hey, um, this is how much profit we've had um, from, uh, from Artemis. Now, Artemis was a, a god that they, predominantly across Asia and particularly Ephesus, believed in. There was a temple where they would have gathered for worship, to worship Artemis. Um, Artemis was a god, we're going to see later, uh, why they believed in Artemis. Um, she was the god of safety and health, so that's sort of a god people seem to want a lot of nowadays. Um, and, uh, and so they had this compulsion around Artemis, and everything was organized around this, and even their economic realities of the silversmith and, this tra- and these tradesmen were based on the worship of Artemis. They produced these little shrines, and if people had a shrine of, the go- of these gods, they believed that then they would have favor from Artemis, and the shrines would be used in their worship of Artemis. And so these, these men are gathered, and it says there in their little business meeting, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. So their economic stability was because of this. Look in verse 26. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, ye. It's like, like the next slide after the money gained from Artemis is the picture of Paul. This Paul, notice what, he, notice what he says, has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So right there, he's like, what Paul is teaching ends our trade and the wealth that we've gained from it. Just feel that if you're in the room and this is your trade and your livelihood. Verse 27, and there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that even she may be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So now they're just sort of like consumed with the reality of what's playing out because Paul has said really clearly that um, gods made by human hands aren't gods. And so that, that teaching is spread in such a, 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 a powerful way that now it's potentially has the ramifications of impacting multiple layers of their culture. Do you see it in verse 27? Look at me again. I want you to see the levels of, of, of where it's coming at the culture. First, it says that there's danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, it, it, it means to lose its good name. That means the impact of the gospel is, is having implications for the economics of the area. 
It's, it's literally rejecting their occupation. Then it says, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. Counted as nothing is the idea of being discredited. Here, the, the gospel is infiltrating and impacting their social realities. Remember, if everybody collectively in Ephesus sort of defaulted to Artemis as their god, then that would have been the predominant gathering place for the people in worship. The worship center is now being rejected. And it goes one further, and he says, and that she, meaning the god specifically, may be deposed from her magnificence, literally it's saying, will be cast down from her greatness. And now, the gospel is, is having an impact in the religious culture, that now the God is being rejected. So in this moment, what I want you to see is the infiltration and impact into the culture, both economically, socially, and religiously, the impact the gospel's having. Verse 28, and when they heard this, they were enraged, not a surprise at this point, and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So I guess the meeting's not going well at this point. And uh, look in verse 29. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So now what you have is the workmen are enraged. They start to cry out, sort of trying to hold on to, to this this structure in their culture that had both provided for them economically, socially, and religiously. And so you can understand why they're enraged. We have to see that here. And the anger gains momentum, and then many start to join them. And before you know it, you got a flat-out riot, okay? I know there's nothing in our world that would give us an idea of how riots play out. Um, and uh, the people are confused. They're kind of caught up in the energy of this. And they end up in the theater and they're dragging with them two of Paul's co-laborers in the gospel. This is a scary situation. Now, I want you to understand the scale of this theater. First, look at this uh, model on the screen of, um, of the, the, the theater. This is the size and the scope of this thing. This isn't like a little theater. Like, not like, oh, we're gonna come in here, me and my 20 friends, and we're gonna have a little play. Now, that's not what's happening here. If you notice at the bottom, I love this, it, it compared it size-wise to Wrigley Field, okay, where the Chicago Cubs play. Like, the, the capacity in this place was like 24,000 people. So imagine, now, Ephesus was at hundreds of thousands of people. So you've got this place like, people are just stirred up in a riot and now you've got these two believers. I mean, look at this current picture of the, of the theater. Even today, this is the ruins of it. Still today, you can see the scale of it. This was a full-blown riot and a dangerous situation. Look in verse 30. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, of course Paul wanted to go in among the crowd. The guy is fearless. But here, look, what's, look what happens. The disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So Paul wants to go in. I'm sure it was a mix of, of love and compassion for the people and wanting to communicate to them the gospel. I'm sure it was also wanting to protect um, his friends who were there and were majorly uh, threatened because of the violence of this riot. But he stays out. He listens 
Uh, quickly, a little aside here on the Asiarchs. They were actually wealthy leaders of the province. And it just gives you a little bit of a glimpse into the impact Paul had had on multiple layers of society that he was respected. And uh, we're not even sure of the spiritual wherewithal of these Asiarchs, but we know that they moved to sort of protect Paul in this. Verse 32, through the rest of the passage. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Normally what happens in a riot is some sense of confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. Yep, hashtag 2020. A 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander. So I love this part, this is hilarious. So some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And so, so basically what they're, they're like, they're like, okay, Alexander, you, you go up. You go up. See if you can stop this craziness that's playing out right now. See if you can get the, the, the crowd to calm down. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! It's like, Alexander, I mean, I just feel bad for him, honestly. Like, the guy goes out, like, good intention. Like, people were like, Alexander, go. You can, you can calm him down. And he gets up there, and he's like, and then for two hours, they start chanting. And I just picture Alexander just being like, like, kind of like hiding. Like, I'm off the stage. This didn't work. But then look what happens, verse 35. And when the town clerk, of all people, the town clerk, just an administrative person in the government, had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Now that gives you a clue to why the people worshipped Artemis. What many believe is, is that there was a, a, like a scrap of a meteorite that had fallen to the ground in Ephesus and the people were like, Artemis. And, and legitimately, that became a centerpiece of their worship and their idea that Artemis not only was a God they believed in, but they believed that the God was specifically caring for and protecting and leading the city of Ephesus. So you just get a little clue of that here. Verse 36, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. So just another quick aside here. It's not the predominant theme of the message, but what I love here is, is that this town clerk is observing and making a point that these believers in the church were not running around with signs going, Artemis is fake! and sort of picketing and protesting about Artemis. You know what they were doing? They were speaking so loudly and so authentically about Jesus Christ that people were realizing that Artemis cannot be a true God because we've met the true God. And what you see here is that they were known, the church was not known for what they were protesting, they were known for what they were promoting. That's a message we need to hear today. And so he affirms Artemis, this, this, this clerk, and then he talks about their character of the, the people that they had such anger towards. Verse 38, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and, these are pro, and there are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. So he's just basically like, just, just work it out through the courts, like if you've got an issue. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. He quieted him down. 
And then he basically says what gets the people to leave is the threat that, remember Ephesus had been given a tremendous amount of freedom from the Roman government. And so he says, listen, 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 if you guys, we get caught and they have to intercede, we're gonna lose some of our freedom. And so the people are like, let's get out of here. And, and that's, what, that's what caused the riot to stop and the assembly to disperse. It's interesting because in the book of Acts, we've seen so often these things sort of end with this gospel presentation and hundreds of people coming to faith in Christ. And here, instead, you see the impact of the gospel on society, on culture. You see a riot rise up as a response to that. And then a, a, just a town clerk disperse it. There's no great gospel opportunity and the people just disperse and go home. But what we do see is we get a very clear picture how a robust faith infiltrates and impacts a surrounding culture. David Peterson summed it up in his commentary on Acts 19. He wrote this, follow along on the screen. He said, this chapter then shows the potential of the gospel to transform the life and culture of a city and its surrounding region. Paul's three-year ministry of teaching the word of the Lord in Ephesus touched people at every level of society and began to transform the religious practices and lifestyle of many. That is for sure a challenge to the church today. Robust faith will infiltrate and impact a surrounding culture. I've, I, I, you see it right here in the book of Acts. I'll never forget... Um, in my college years, um, I went to a school in Northeast Missouri uh, called Truman State University, and it was a public liberal arts school, just a secular school that I went to to study, and um, I experienced something at that school that has been um, so foundational to my call to ministry, my faith, everything, and, and especially this message sort of speaks to that in so many ways. Um, at that college, uh, when I was there with my wife and I, um, when we were there during that season, it was such an unusual work of God that was happening on that campus. I mean, I've never been in a context where I've seen so many different uh, college ministries working together, and um, there was such health in all of the ministries, and there was such a unity on campus among the Christians, and we were seeing people come to faith in Christ. We were seeing people baptized. We were seeing people's lives completely changed and altered. We were seeing people change their careers, mine included, away from a secular field into a um, into ministry. We were seeing people see their occupation and, and begin to pray and consider how God would use them as missionaries in the place that they went. And, and to the point where we, we saw this playing out in such a powerful way across our campus. And yes, 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 there was opposition. Okay, it was a secular campus. Access any temptation you wanted. But the Christians' lives were so clear that many, many leaders in those ministries interacted with people that came to the school and then left. And the reason why they left is they said, this feels like a Christian school. And we were like, you're right, it does. You're right, it does. Because a robust faith infiltrates and impacts a culture. And I believe and have seen the same thing begin to play out in our church. I see it. I see it in the way, that's, the way God's using some of you so powerfully in your family or in your neighborhood or in your workplace. And, and I want this potential to increase. I, I want it to, 
to first be happening in our lives, a revival of sorts, when we're our hearts and our lives are in, encounter the gospel, and then we want to be thinking about how it can be happening then collectively through our church. So there's a few principles that we have to highlight if we want to be faithful in this. There's a few principles right here in Acts 19 that I want to point out and challenge us with. They have to be incorporated in our lives and in our church if we want to infiltrate and impact our surrounding culture. The first one is this. We've got to reach the culture instead of retreating from the culture. Reach the culture instead of retreating from the culture. You see this happening in Ephesus, don't you? Like, the local church, their message was so clear that, that Demetrius, a non-Christian silversmith, knew what Paul was teaching. He knew what Paul was teaching. He knew the message that he was communicating. The town clerk both knew what they believed and what they were not saying about Artemis to the point where the town clerk could conclude that they were not sacrilegious or blasphemers of the goddess. They were just focused on the real true God who had come and because of that, what's the need for those silver shrines? What you see here is that in Ephesus, the gathering of the local church was not the end goal. And their faith, what they believed, was not a private reality. It wasn't something where I'm like, over here I've got my, like, my faith and, and I, I talk about my faith over here, but it doesn't really impact any other aspect of my life. That's the, that is not what was happening in the Church of Jesus Christ, nor uh, should it be what is happening in the Church of Jesus Christ today. They gathered together to worship and to learn from God's word. And they saturated their minds and their hearts and their lives with the love of God clearly seen in the gospel. And they were learning in that context in the church to love one another as God would have them love. But they did not stop there. They couldn't stop there. They, 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 they left their gathering together as sent ones. Sent to share Christ sent to communicate the gospel, sent to boldly obey Christ in every aspect of life, sent. Recognize this morning the purpose of the local church. The ultimate purpose of the church is not the gathering of the saints. We must see the gathering of the church as a means to an end, not as the end. If Christ's church ever becomes an entity unto itself and not a sending agency, then we have started the countdown to the death of our church. Let me say it again. If Christ's church becomes an entity unto itself and not a sending agency, then we have started the countdown to the death of our church. Tick, tick, tick. We're not living our purpose by gathering more disciples in the room. We are living our purpose as a church when the disciples in the room are being healed, equipped, and focused on being sent out into the world. That's the end goal. Don't believe anything else because too many churches are headed to death because they've shut the door on 
their purpose to be ascending agency. The gathering of the church is a means to an end, not the end. The end goal is to be sent into the world with whatever time we have left before Jesus returns to make more disciples for God's glory and to impact the very culture in which we live. We're processing this around our church a lot right now, I promise you. I believe it's a product of God's people responding to the book of Acts. I believe it's part of of the timing of the book of Acts and the life of our church. I see these things. I'm thinking about these things and we're asking just how can this be more clear? We're processing through the purpose of events and ministries at every level. We're processing through the language in our culture, the things that we say and what what it means and what people can conclude when we say these things over and over. One simple move I realized this week is to sharpen a message that we say to our church every week. Every week we say what at the end of the service? Right, it's like the trigger point. You guys are like, okay, it's time to go now. You pick up your Bible, you're like, okay, service is over. And um, it's true that you are loved. God loves you constantly, graciously, deeply. But it's not the end, church. It's not the end. The end goal is not to be loved. It's, the end goal is not, is, or we're not called to kind of rest in God's love and just retreat from the culture and be like, I'm just gonna be over here just like sitting in God's love, just waiting for Christ to return. Paul rebuked the Thessalonians for that position and posture. We're called to mission to be sent to reach the culture. It's, it's the fundamental reality that you see in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, it doesn't stop there. That he sent his son into the world. There is a sentness that is always the agency of redemption. Love was the fuel that led to sending his son. And the end of being loved is fulfilled only when we go and make disciples. Only when we're sent ones, fueled by God's love. So moving forward, the the message at the end of every service now is not going to be you are loved. It's not enough. It doesn't position us rightly to be what God's called the church to be. And I just, there's some sharpening that we can do. So the end of every service is you are loved and you are sent. You are loved and you are sent. Why? Why are we gathering together? Just to learn some things about about God and have like a little kumbaya moment where we're all like, yeah, we love Jesus. No, it's to understand some things about the power and the work of the gospel so that we have a message to take and infiltrate all layers and spheres of life. That's our purpose. You are loved and you are sent. But listen, we have to do more than just change what we say at the end of a service. We must prioritize being sent. We must respond at every level. We gotta change our attitude on this. Just think about the way you think about things in our church. Maybe it's your small group. Maybe it's a ministry you're a part of. Maybe it's your friend group that you have at church. I got my best friends. We're just gonna be together for eternity. Yeah, we have a purpose right now and it's not to be together for eternity. Okay, that'll come at a point. And then no, no more mission opportunity. Listen, more sending than settling more welcoming than protecting, more open than closed. Sent ones have good news to share with others. And if our fellowship, the fabric of our relationships is to support and encourage one another in the mission, then we'll be on the track to being what God's actually called the local church to be. 
Over the last six months, there are lots of conversations happening right now on this. I just can sense it both in the, just in the culture of our church coming up through so many different interactions. Um, Pastor Jeremy right now is uh, processing through, and I've really called him and asked him to sort of lead forward. What does evangelism look like in our church in the next year or two? Um, Dylan Shaw was meeting with uh, a few guys talking about opportunities for evangelism. Evangelism, to go reach out and purposely go out to share the gospel with people in our area. I met with a group of local pastors recently to talk about ways we can serve our community together to show a unified um, commitment to the love of Christ in our community. I'm excited for where this is headed and if anybody feels God awakening them or calling them to learn more, grow more in that, let us know and we'll get you connected with some of these conversations that we believe God is gonna work out in our church in a variety of ways in the coming years. Reach the culture instead of retreating from the culture. Reach the culture instead of retreating from the culture. We've gotta recognize the purpose of the local church. Why, why, why do we meet together? Why has God drawn the people that are here week in and week out? Just so we can be a part of a church, so we can have our little community, or because God has a greater purpose for us. I believe it's always the greater purpose. And we cannot, I will not, I will not allow us to be satisfied with that. Robust faith will infiltrate and impact a surrounding culture. Then this, this is so important, along with reaching out into the culture, is this, respond to the world with compassion. In studying this passage, I learned something that I had not seen before that I want to make sure you see. Grant Osborne in his commentary on Acts helped me out so much by this observation about what was happening here in Acts 19. Look at what he wrote. He wrote this, follow along. This had, had been a far more traumatic experience than we would surmise from the language of Acts. In 1 Corinthians 15, 32, Paul says he fought with wild beasts in Ephesus. This was an ancient metaphor for human riots and obstinate people. So this is, he was making an observation about this moment right here in the book of Acts. Also, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11 speaks of affliction experienced in Asia when Paul despaired of life itself. I, I, um... I'm deeply helped and challenged by an apostle who shows us, I believe, the compassionate love of Jesus. Paul wanted to go into the theater. And I don't believe that in the character of Paul, I see anywhere that his motive was like, I'm gonna tell him what the truth is. Like, let me in there. I'm gonna set him right. No, I, I believe that as the people were quieted by the town clerk and just dispersed and went back to their own lives, I believe that very clearly we can see that Paul despaired in that moment. There was a despair because he had compassion on them. And I believe the compassion extends to a variety of levels. I believe that one of the things that we see in this passage and why we get this glimpse into Demetrius and these tradespeople and then the confusion and the riotous, enraged anger is, be, is to give us a glimpse at how much of a challenge it is for people to really, truly put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
Paul longed for them to know Christ. And and in this, I, I just wrote down in my notes, I wrote, the church is not called to be angry with the world and its beliefs. We're called to have compassion. And so part of that, I believe, is to see the challenge in gospel transformation. You see here that choosing to follow Christ for these, for these people literally was going to dismantle their, their religious, their social, and even their economic lives. And I don't believe that, that we should just, as a church, be like, well, well, come to faith in Christ. He'll figure it all out for you. Like, we have to have more compassion than that as we engage the lost. We have to have more compassion. It's easy to declare the biblical truth that life starts at conception, but it requires compassion to wrestle with the social and economic realities of bringing an unplanned or unwanted child into the world. We have to see the challenge and show compassion. It does not mean that, that, that we allow what God forbids, okay? I'm not saying that. Just turn, turn to someone next to you. He's not saying that. I'm not saying that. Are we, though, as a church, prepared to sacrifice financially to support mothers or families who have unplanned pregnancies? Are we going to rally around them or just declare the truth to them? Are we prepared to adopt children who are not wanted or whose families cannot provide for them? It's easy to say you're pro-life. It's another thing to show compassion for all aspects of life. God forgive us, amen. Men, that's an appropriate place to clap. One person got it. Joking. But seriously, there should be a reality that we say, God forgive us for our failures to show compassion. Forgive us. What about um, ex-convicts? I'm so thankful for our partnership with Fresh Coast Alliance. The convicts come out of prison with no support system, no training or experience, oftentimes to exist in society in a healthy way. Most of us cannot imagine the challenge just to survive. I'm like, oh, we'll just tell you the gospel. It'll make everything better. Really? Really? Or is the gospel working through the church supposed to be an agency that's supposed to come alongside and support and encourage and show compassion, not just share the gospel? I'm thankful for our partnership, but the bigger question here is, do you see the challenge in gospel transformation? Listen, we don't accommodate the culture. We don't accommodate the culture. But what we do is we see the challenge in gospel transformation and we show compassion. I believe, church, that this is so imperative, so important, that our failure to do this, I believe, keeps the door shut to people really seeing the gospel. And when we do this, there's already so many hurdles that people have to get past, that, that they have to understand, that they have to receive to receive the fullness of the gospel. And when we come around them, we make it more palatable and believable. And we need to show them compassion. I believe this compassion will open doors for the gospel. That's why Peter, I believe in 1 Peter 3, talking about defending the hope of the gospel, he ends it with this, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness and respect. The church needs this today desperately. See the challenge in gospel transformation.
religious, social, and economic realities. I mean, I don't know all of your stories. I know some of your stories. How many of you, in coming to Christ, have had to walk in total away from another religion? I know some of your stories. Some of you, when you came to Christ, everybody around you was cheering it. Let us have compassion for some that might have to completely abandon their religion. Let's, let's have compassion on people who, um, in coming to faith in Christ, had to um, be rejected by their family and lose all of their friends. I know some in our church that have had to carry that weight. I know that there are some who have lost jobs and or had to quit or change an occupation when they uh, chose to follow Christ. We have to see the challenge in gospel transformation and respond to the world with compassion. Compassion, church. So opposite of the message that too often comes from the churches that believe the same things that we believe, but not here. Robust faith will infiltrate and impact a surrounding culture. Reach the culture instead of retreating from the culture. Respond to the world with compassion. I want so badly, it is my prayer, it's been my prayer since coming here to plant the church. It's, it's fundamental to the fabric of why I love doing what I'm doing and I want so badly in my prayers for us, both individually and collectively, to infiltrate and impact the surrounding culture. I believe we want the same things, but we have to do it in the gospel way, not in the way of the world not by fighting for power, not by winning arguments, but by promoting and parading around the goodness and the sufficiency and the awesome graciousness and love of Jesus Christ. And that gospel must be central. And as we reach the culture, we'll respond with compassion because we are loved and we are sent. And so I just want in this moment, as we conclude, just to Again, get in a posture to receive from God. And so, whether you're bowing your heads or just have your hands open in front of you, I just want you to begin to pray, you and God alone. And, and some of you, I believe that in this moment, God could encourage you in a supernatural way to continue to be faithful to the places where you are infiltrating and impacting the surrounding culture. I believe some of you, God could awaken to a calling, an opportunity where God could use you. And I believe that some of us could just see and this vision and, and be praying for this in our church. So let's just do that now together. Let's just seek God right now. And then I'll close this in just a few moments. Just cry out to him. God, do this. Lead us to infiltrate and impact our culture. Yes, God. Listening, God, speak to us. Lead us, God.
God, awaken our hearts. Awaken our hearts with courage. Give our minds clarity about this gospel. Let our celebration lead to the declaration. Let our humility drive us to a place where we are empowered with a message that can change lives. Let our courage to move us from a posture of retreating to a posture of reaching. Help us to have clarity about what the church is to be. Not an end, but a means to an end. I pray as we come in, we'd come to be filled and we would leave ready to be poured out. And God, I pray that you would stir in our people. I, I pray that this wouldn't need to be an agenda or a program, but that the people of God would become so awakened to the truth and the power that is in the gospel that what would well up within us is a movement, an authentic movement to encounter and to engage our culture. Not just with the words of truth, but with a heart of compassion that will go to whatever extent to meet people in their suffering, to walk with them as they declare their faith in Jesus. A commitment that would be self-sacrificing. And that in that, what would emerge is the fame of the name of Jesus Christ and the gospel, a robust faith that would infiltrate and impact our surrounding culture. God, raise up your people. Help them to see the potential of the life that you've given them and the opportunity that is fleeting in this very short life. And so we thank you for this message and we receive it. Pray that we would continually be challenged by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.